Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shayel Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 2, The Land Itself. The land of Israel has always been divisive. Just look at the gap between these descriptions. First, let's go to our old standby, Exodus 3.8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Meanwhile, on the other side of the spectrum, we have Mark Twain, who visited the land in the 19th century. And here was his impression. The further we went, the hotter the sun got and the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. He summarized his impressions in the following way. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Palestine is no more of this workday world. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It is... Dreamland. But what is this country really like? We need answers. After all, the star of this podcast isn't a particular people or religion. Instead, our glamorous leading lady is the land of Israel itself. So let's get to know her a bit better. We all know that size isn't everything. But when it comes to the land of Israel, it might be the most essential feature of it. The modern state of Israel measures a mere 250 miles from its northernmost point in Metula to the southernmost port of Eilat. But if that sounds small, consider how narrow the land is. It is less than 40 miles wide at the narrowest point, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean coast. Although fixed borders are a recent innovation in the Middle East, the land of Israel has always been, more or less, its own geographical unit. To the east sits the North Arab Desert, which takes up 75% of the territory of modern Jordan. To the west are the Mediterranean and Sinai Desert. To the south are the Red Sea and, yep, more desert. None of these areas were suitable for prominent cities and stable civilizations, forcing the societies in the land of Israel into narrow confines. As a result... Although many innovations came from Israel, including, as we'll discuss, reliable agriculture and possibly even the controlled use of fire, it lagged behind foreign competitors. Meanwhile, the north, where modern Lebanon and Syria are, were more open and contained more sustainable cities and societies. But they led into Anatolia and Mesopotamia, which were larger centers of power throughout most of history. Therefore, they were often within the orbit of powers dominating those areas. The centers of early civilization were indeed quite close. Egypt, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, even the Minoans and the Arabs were too close for comfort, further boxing in the civilizations in the land of Israel. But that was also the advantage of the land, that it served as a crossroads. And therefore, the importance of this area was apparent from early in human history. We've all heard that Africa is the cradle of mankind. And indeed, according to just about every theory, the first hominins, our first ancestors, to uh, exist, existed in Africa and left that area in order to go around 
uh, around the world. That means that the future Holy Land was a crucial link in spreading Homo sapiens throughout the world. Now, there may or may not have been another path for them, uh, for those who cross over from Africa into Asia and Europe. We don't really know. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a future episode. But either way, it was a major waypoint, possibly the only waypoint. Therefore, most of those who went through the Levant, uh, who went out of Africa, I should say, passed through the Levant at one point or another. And a good portion of them chose to stay there. The ease of passage has sharpened the area's importance, even in comparison to Lebanon, which is another waypoint. While that area is more mountainous and difficult to traverse and does not link directly to Africa, much of Israel is flat or covered with modest hills, and it has wadis, valleys, that make transportation easier. Therefore, shipping from the Mediterranean and heading inland would usually travel through Israel instead of Lebanon and Syria. Even the Phoenicians would trade inland through Chatzol and other Canaanite city-states instead of heading into the Becca Valley and the mountains over there. As I have already implied, the fertility of the land also played a role in its importance. Today, much of the land of Israel remains a fertile strip between two arid zones, the Negev-Sinai area, stretching from Beersheba into Egypt, and Jordan. That is why it would host some of the earliest farming communities on Earth. That was where you could grow things. But unfortunately, that meant their communities were open to taxing and plunder by outside um, powers. And often there was no state of consequence to defend them or states that simply were unable to. These two facts had massive implications for the political and social structure of the land. First, it was too small to sustain a mighty empire, and acted as a point of passage for trade and armies for the larger powers. So, analysts of geopolitics have long maintained that geography is destiny. The great thinker of that school of thought, Harold Mackinder, said, Man, and not nature, initiates, but nature, in large measure, controls. Indeed, while humans build kingdoms and plan strategies, they are always constrained by geography. That was doubly true in ancient times, when communications and logistics made conquest and expansion particularly difficult. Now, let's talk a little bit about climate. A lot of time has passed since those biblical days, but the weather remains quite similar. There are only two seasons in Israel, both now and then, summer and winter. Summer gets very hot and is dry in most of the country. Meanwhile, winter is mild near the coast, but can get quite bitter and rainy as you go further inland and up north. It usually rains for a total of around 30 days per year, obviously depending where you are. However, there is always the danger of severe droughts when it does not hit that mark. The region's topography is essential for understanding how societies there have developed. Here is one description from a geographer. The land of Israel comprises of a narrow coastal plain, two parallel mountain ranges with a rift valley in between, and an eastward sloping plateau dissected by many eastward running wadis. Because the mountains divided the area, uh, and rainfall divides the area as well, two distinct, though dependent, ecosystems figure heavily 
in the early history of the southern Levant, of the land of Israel. The coastal region, which is richest in natural food resources, the Jordan Rift Valley area from the Gulf of Eilat up to modern Damascus, has proved quite conducive both to current agriculture and early agriculture on both sides of the rift in what is today Jordan and Israel. In addition, the area includes valleys and gorges, which allow for the gathering of rainfall. Now, in both strips, the northern areas get more rainfall, while the southernmost regions are more arid and prone to becoming deserts when precipitation levels are low. The mountain ranges in the Levant go from north to south, unlike their equivalents in Lebanon and in Anatolia. That means it was relatively easy to pass from east to west. That allowed the transfer of people and ideas relatively quickly from side to side. And now for a few words on biodiversity. There was a good deal of it in the region in the distant past. In particular, there were more large predators and games than today. Since Homo sapiens were less effective hunters than they are today. And also, the climate was quite different. Antelopes, boar, and deer were, pr- were plentiful especially on the coast and Galilee grasslands. Wild goats and sheep were found in the lowlands and drier areas, and many of them were cultivated and domesticated by humans later on. Back then, you could also see the wild cattle that, when they were domesticated, became the backbone of many agricultural farmsteads. Also, one of the reasons the earliest agricultural farmsteads grew in the land of Israel. At certain times, this land contained animals we wouldn't associate with it at all. For example, elephants dwell there as recently as 400,000 years ago. Our ancestors even developed special tools to scoop out and eat elephant bone marrow, as we learned from the Gesher Bnot Yaakov find, which we will discuss in greater detail in the next episode. The elephants in Israel were straight tusk ones, about twice as big as modern elephants. In fact, one Israeli researcher believes they played a crucial role in helping humans cross over from Africa in part of the out-of-Africa theory. So Tel Aviv professor um, Ron Barkai, Tel Aviv University professor Ron Barkai, says, there are strong arguments to claim that prehistoric people used elephants' migrating routes to travel out of Africa. Indeed, he says, Elephants are highly dependent on water and have very good memory, so they may have paved the way for humans to leave Africa and spread into other regions. So we may have elephants to thank for the fact that we don't all live in Africa today. Now, let's talk about what is grown in the land of Israel, since, as we said, it was such an early center of agriculture. The humans living in the pre-agricultural land of Israel were already quite familiar with cereals and other staples. Now, at first, agriculture was used to supplement the nomadic lifestyle. Then, some individuals relied on grains to provide them with an increasingly more significant proportion of their caloric intake. This process occurred between 13,000 and 11,000 BCE, and we'll talk about it a little more later on. It was aided by the climate amelioration, that means the moderation of the bitter cold that was in the area which had begun a few thousand years earlier, probably around 17,000 BCE, making some of the desert terrain more habitable. Looking at diets, we can get some clues from the Torah. In that context, the land is famously called 
the land of milk and honey. It often refers to the land's bounty as wheat, wine, and oil. In other words, that classic healthy Mediterranean diet. An early Egyptian tale, written well before the book of Exodus, the tale of sinew, refers to Canaan in the following manner. Figs were in it and grapes. It had more wine than water. Abundant was its honey, plentiful its oil. All kinds of fruit were on the trees. Barley was there and emmer, and no end of cattle of all kind, as well as desert game and milk dishes of any kind imaginable. Now, on some level, this tale is a poetic exaggeration, but we also have to keep something else in mind. The Egyptian writers of the tale of sinew were used to a desert climate, at least in the areas that weren't directly around the Nile River. So northern and middle Canaan were far more fertile than the lands they were used to. By comparison, it seemed incredibly rich with produce. And that is one of the major uh, elements behind the conception of the land of Israel as the land of milk and honey. In comparison to the deserts next to it, it certainly was. Now, the agricultural products of the land have changed significantly over the years. In biblical times, the staples grown were wheat, barley, figs, vines, olives, dates, and pomegranates, all of which are still associated with the land of Israel. Uh, wheat, not as much as it used to be. But none of them play a particularly significant role in modern Israeli agriculture. Today, Israeli agriculture is based on irrigation, which allows it to grow more water-rich products, maybe not for long, depending on global warming, etc. Therefore, some of the more modern crops include oranges, cotton, sugar, beet, vegetable, potatoes, and apples, none of which were grown in the land of Israel in biblical times. Another defining element in the climate of the land of Israel is water, or lack thereof. Now, in relation to Jordan and Sinai, Israel is a temperate and bountiful land, but these differences should not be exaggerated, especially in comparison to many northern countries like Canada or Sweden. The land is roughly 60% desert, and as mentioned, drought could be a severe problem, and rainfall when it occurs can also be dangerous and unpredictable. Serious flooding can occur in the same spot as soon as drought ends, and this particularly happens in the desert areas. The crucial importance of water and rainfall is clear from the contours of local religions. The deities of Canaan, Greece, and even the Israelite god are associated with rain-giving ceremonies. From prehistoric times, the locals built irrigation canals from brooks and streams, wells and aqueducts, and rain-collecting cisterns. The aqueduct of Caesarea, built by the Emperor Hadrian, was the most spectacular of these ancient systems until Israel completed the National Water Carrier in 1964. The methods of the ancient times are still employed in Israel today and in Palestine as well, albeit with increased sophistication. Now, Despite being a small area, the land of Israel has significant geographic divides, um, and they have sharp divisions between them that have often influenced the cultures that arose in each one. One geographer wrote, Israel is best described as a series of parallel lines of divergent terrain extending from north to south. 
You can divide the land of Israel into 10 distinct ecological zones using this method. Here is a complete list. The Upper Galilee, the Lower Galilee, the Hula Valley, the Jordan Valley, the Jezreel Valley, Samaria, the Judean foothills, the Northern Coastal Plain, the Southern Coastal Plain, and the Negev. One of the main differences between the zones is the amount of rainfall in each. The Negev receives about 2 inches of annual rain. The Judean mountains, right nearby, receive about 24 inches, and the Galilee gets a bountiful 40 inches per year. Temperature differences are sharp as well. The Jordan Valley routinely sees temperatures above 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Meanwhile, the Galilee rarely sees temperatures in the 90s and experiences snow on a fairly regular basis. I won't go into all the details of each one of these 10 subsectors, but let's look at some of the major groupings of areas. The coastal area is important and distinct from the rest of the country. Um, it's the area nearest the Mediterranean, of course. It's a plain typified by the presence of sand dunes. The coastal plains are only roughly 12 miles wide. They have seasonal riverbeds across them, which the Arabs call wadis. The coastline itself is dotted with natural coves. Uh, this combination of factors led to the existence of swamps. Indeed, until the Romans drained them, large parts of the area were uninhabitable. Zionist pioneers completed that job 2,000 years later. Therefore, until the 20th century, the coastal region was nowhere near as suitable for agriculture and for large population support as it is today. Over the years, it has encouraged the coastline, a very different type of culture from the inland, often more cosmopolitan and seafaring, as coastal areas usually are. The current cultural and political divide between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv is typical of that traditional split, and anyone who's visited Israel and sees conservative Jerusalem versus uh, more liberal Tel Aviv knows what I'm talking about. To the east of the coast is a series of footholds known as the Shefila or Shvila. They contain fertile valleys and receive an amount of rainfall similar to the coast. Now, in opposition um, to the coast has often stood the central highlands. This small mountain system extends from south of Jerusalem into the Galilee. Uh, the, it has broad valleys such as the Jezreel and Bechan and provides transportation conduits that have eased and facilitated the trade that has been so important for the land of Israel over the years. In ancient times, the central highlands were more central than today. They received more rainfall and there was no irrigation to transfer it elsewhere and was more comfortable for living since it was far away from swamps and the accompanying malaria. Um, farming was mainly executed in the central highlands through a system of terraces that proved quite effective. It is no coincidence that Jerusalem rose to its political, cultural, and military importance in earlier periods, and today lags behind in Tel Aviv now that trade from abroad plays a larger role and irrigation uh, is easier, and of course swamps have been dried out. Lifestyle in these parts of the country was based on olives. There was no other source of oil here in ancient times. Butter or lard could not be preserved in the hot climate. Therefore, olives were used for cooking, lighting, soaps, ointments, etc. And it continues to be an important part of the lifestyle of Palestinians living in the West Bank today. Therefore, um, it was due to its diversity, it was a desirable commodity in Mesopotamia. 
olives are rare over there. And one of the major things that we could offer Mesopotamians in exchange for the many goods that they produced over there were olives. The lesser importance of olives today in the modern economy is also part of its lower importance. Now, moving further east, we get the higher mountains of Judea and Galilee, stretching into the Golan. The Galilee receives the most rainfall of any area in the country. The lower Galilee has small hills and valleys. Meanwhile, the upper Galilee has steeper hills and deeper rivers. The rainfall collected in the area centers on the Sea of Galilee, or what Israelis call the Kineret, a sweet water body that remains a central source of water in the region. Further east, the Galilee turns into the Golan Heights, the highest mountains in the country. The Galilee, as anyone who has visited knows, provides some of the most beautiful scenery in the country. In the upper Galilee, mountains rise to 2,000-3,000 feet, and from Tzfat, Safed, one can look down over 3,000 feet downward into the um, sea below. However, the wild terrain in those areas was inhospitable to government control and military operations in ancient times. Therefore, for much of the history we will survey, the Galilee served as the backwoods of the country. Bandits lived there, and persecuted minorities sought refuge there, which is why the Druze and Cherkessians have often made their homes in that area as opposed to other parts of the country. A unique part of the country is the Jordan Valley. It marks the border between modern Israel and Jordan, and it's a valley divided by the Jordan River. It sits between the Judean and Jordanian mountains. The river leads into the Dead Sea, adjacent to the Judean Desert. Of course, the Dead Sea is the lowest spot in Israel and the lowest land-based elevation in the world. It is more than nine times saltier than the ocean and allows you to float on the surface effortlessly. The Jordan River is the only perennial river in the land of Israel and runs right through it. However, it should be noted, it is nowhere near as impressive as the Bible would have us think. The Jordan Valley is part of a much broader regional rift. How broad? It extends from Turkey all the way to South Africa. The 6,000-mile rift is sometimes known as the Great Syria-African Rift. Now, moving on to the Negev. The Negev dominates the south of the country and is the biggest area. Much of it is arid, but some of it is only semi-arid and allows for some limited agriculture. How dry are parts of the Negev? Well, in a lot, it only rains once every few years. The southern Negev has no arable land at all. However, it is rich in minerals, such as the copper of Timna, which would form the basis of some of the earliest civilizations in the southern part of the country. Most of the Negev is a mountainous plateau. However, there's three desert craters that have been caused by erosion. The most famous one is Machtesh Ramon, which was caused by volcanic eruptions hundreds of millions of years ago. Now, the existence of the Negev is a bit of geopolitical misfortune for the kingdoms, city-states, and modern states that have tried to defend the land of Israel. It serves as an easy way to traverse into the country and has allowed access for invaders all the way back from the domination of Egypt thousands of years ago to um, the invasion of Egyptian tanks in 1948. Some things don't change. Now, why does all this matter? This is not a geographic podcast, of course, but geography has had an essential role 
in shaping early societies in this land. The land of Israel was exceptionally diverse for such a small territory. So while you can ski in the peaks of the Golan Heists, you roast on the beach in the sweltering heat of the Gulf of Aqaba. Therefore, different social structures and societies could flourish in any area, yet they could prove unsuitable for the other areas. And we start to see those splits from the nomadic era, where some nomads took the north as their area, and they often had to wander 300 to 500 kilometers in order to make it and find their food. But the nomads that lived in the deserts of Judea and the Negev had to travel much further. They would cover 500 to 2,000 kilometers. Their food was different, their traditions were different, and their needs were different. So you could already see social differences in migratory bands uh, that early on. Fundamental in the biblical era is the cleavage between the lowlands and the highlands. Now, for nomads, they would sometimes switch from one to the other, depending on the season of the year. Winters were best passed in the warmer lowlands. Meanwhile, summers saw many move to the cooler um, highlands. These regional differences, which would allow different cultures to blossom. If a group could find their regional niche, they could survive without being part of the dominant culture. And that's one of the reasons the dominant cultures in the land of Israel were usually weaker than in other places like Anatolia, like Egypt, and like Mesopotamia. In his classic study, M.W. Prausnitz explained the following. The remarkable success of the Mesolithic and Neolithic cultures in Israel and Jordan was apparently helped by the proximity of totally different climatological areas, Mediterranean, semi-arid, and arid, providing ecological niches where new cultures could strike roots and adjust. At the same time, old cultures were able to survive and modify their way of life to the prevailing physical environment. That should help you understand how some cultures, like the Druze, like the Jews, and the Sumerians, have managed to preserve their cultures for thousands of years, when in other countries they would have been assimilated into the dominant culture. If so... Now we have some idea of how the land has shaped cultural and political developments. We can see the origins of some of the cultural differences between Israelis and, dare I say, Americans today. For those living in the land of Israel, security and building a large and strong state has been a constant problem. You have invaders coming in from every angle. You have people who want to exploit the resources of the country and pass from one to the other, building up a mechanism that can fend off invasions and incursions has always been the highest need of those living in the land of Israel. Meanwhile, for Americans, their heritage is of emancipation from what they saw as an authoritarian British imperial government. That's one clue, although there are many others, as to why a strong government is heavily valued in the Levant, while individual freedom is at the forefront in the United States. So this is our first clue that societies and cultures in the land of Israel are vastly different and shaped in very different ways from those in the United States and in other Western countries. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. In the next episode, we will begin the story of the people who lived in the land of Israel and unpack all these themes. So see you next time 
on the History of the Land of Israel podcast.